Welcome to the TappingSolution.com's Bits and Pieces podcast, where we share information designed to change your life. Whether you're new to EFT tapping or an old hand, you'll find simple, inspiring information to brighten your day, motivate you, and help you live your best life. To learn more about tapping, visit thetappingsolution.com. Now, here's today's clip. Today, I am having a real pinch myself moment as I get to sit down with a woman who's been a huge inspiration in my life and in the lives of millions of people. Here is a little bit about our guest. She is a New York Times bestselling author with over 4 million books in print and has been a regular guest on Oprah, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and Dr. Oz. Her latest book, Goddesses Never Age, seeks to address the limiting beliefs and programs we have around aging that are holding us back from a life of excitement and adventure. Whether you are a man or a woman, there is a lot you can learn from Dr. Christian Northrup. Dr. Northrup, welcome. Thank you, what a pleasure. Thank you for being a part of this. I said in the beginning, this is a pinch myself moment because I remember that when I was a kid, I would get off the school bus, and my mom is a elementary school psychologist, and at four o'clock, we'd sit down together and watch Oprah. And I remember being 14 years old, coming home from school and watching you on Oprah, and being mesmerized. And I remembered it, you know, I watched those shows every day, but I remembered it because you spoke about the female body, you spoke about health in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about health before. And you were really one of those brave pioneers that started to say, we need to look at our body differently and see that mind-body connection. So I think the best place to start is just to hear about your experience from being in that traditional doctor and when you had that realization that there's more to health than just you know the, these mechanisms in our body. Well interestingly enough I grew up in a really health conscious family so we ate organic food, we composted, we took vitamins, we were called health nuts. My aunt and uncle were both medical doctors, my dad was a dentist and they made fun of him but they were not very healthy. So I, but I grew up, you know, with Thanksgiving being like an American Medical Association meeting, and I loved my family, <laughs> but I saw both sides of it. Yes. And my dad would say, you can tell the state of someone's health by looking in their mouth. And he was right. Any dentist will tell you that. Osteoporosis shows up in the first place in the mandible. You can see heart disease showing up as gingivitis, all kinds of stuff like that. So I knew, I grew up knowing that health was more than uh, waiting for disease to happen. That's pretty much our, Ooh, what, what we do. Health is more than waiting for disease to happen. Yes. Yeah, so do you what, think what that's we, the state where we're in? That's oh, yeah. where we What look. we call healthcare has nothing to do with health. It, it is disease management and it is disease screening. So we think that disease screening is healthcare. I don't want to know when you get high blood pressure or diabetes. I want to know why, because we know, for instance, from the Bogalusa heart study, of eight-year-olds. Heart disease starts when you're eight. Uh, diabetes, what we used to call adult onset diabetes, is now in eight and nine-year-olds. These are all things that are emotional, environmental, and uh, societal-wide, but everything we believe about our health is a cultural construct. It, and you've, you've got to understand 
that science, the way it's practiced, reductionistic science, you have disease because this is what runs in your family, is wrong. Beliefs and your culture are far more powerful than your genes. And your emotions are the key. Buried emotions, anger, grief, sadness, that you don't want to feel. Or we even know that healthy emotions are stressful for people. Why? Because in families, we're taught that there's a limit on how much joy and happiness you can have. So the exalted emotions terrify people. They're, they're used to a bandwidth of ordinary misery. This is comfortable misery. We don't want to get too high here. We don't want to get too low down here. But dis-ease is the result of imbalances that have been present for years before you actually get a diagnosis. And that's why things like the tapping is so powerful because you can get at these things when they are ticking time bombs in the body and diffuse them long before you've got something that you can see under a slide, right. under a microscope. And when we can see that something under the slide and we begin to look at recovery, we don't just look at the current situation, but the past and what we need to heal and let go of. Absolutely, so absolutely. you have said that an imbalance in your life shows up in your body. Yeah, now what happens though, the body is self-healing. Mm -hmm. So it does everything in its power to keep you well until it finally says, I give up. But believe me, that little knot in your stomach, that the tension headache, the overeating, the insomnia, those things are all the result of imbalances, depression, anxiety, you know? And so why wait? Although heaven knows there's plenty of people who've had, who have diagnoses and the mind-body connection helps them enormously. I always say to people, you know, um, for my whole career, people have said, well, you know, I didn't cause my disease. I'm not responsible for my disease. No, you're not. You didn't cause it with your intellect. Mm -hmm. You caused it with your life, but it isn't cause and effect. You're responsible to your body. You're responsible to your life, not for your life. And therein lies your power. To me, it's so powerless to feel like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a victim of my genes. There's nothing I can do about it. My mother had it, I will get it, my daughter will get it. That is the essence of powerlessness because the new science of epigenetics shows that the environment is what determines how a gene will be expressed. And the environment has everything to do with your emotions and then the behavior that stems from those emotions. How do you tell the difference between feeling the power of taking responsibility and going and taking that road of guilt? Uh, first of all, everyone usually is going to have to go through guilt and shame because every culture studied all over the world uses three things to keep their members in line. Betrayal, shame, and abandonment. And so when you begin to get healthier or to feel healthy, invariably the childhood wounds from your parents, maybe from your church, from your school, the childhood wounds of shame, betrayal, and abandonment will come up and you will feel bad about yourself. This exists to keep people in line and that's the work of Dr. Mario Martinez, the Biocognitive Institute. 
Right. Yeah. Well, and this is why it's so powerful, because if we have to address these things, to have a structure where we say, okay, this is my safe space to be able to go into this. Because there is yes. a lot of fear. A lot of people think, do I really want to look at these things? But it is the path to freedom. Well, you know, one of the things that many people always feel like, oh God, if I let myself go there, if I feel how sad I feel, or if I feel how angry I feel, it will never end. Mm -hmm. I will go into an abyss. That, that's the uh, powerlessness of a child. Uh, it will never end. And what you find instead is it is the pain that ends the pain. It's the feelings that end the awful feelings. When I do the um, high intensity training, 20 seconds, full out running <laughs> as fast as I can. Eight times, I'm done. Right. It's and not you like the rest of my life. It. There's a problem, there's a, a power, yeah. not a problem, a power to committing to that. That's right. So I want to hear about your tapping experience because you've been talking for many years about the connection of mind and body, but it was only until recently that you started to tap. So tell us a bit about that experience. Well, you called me up. So Jessica called me, told me about her new book, Tapping for Weight Loss and Body Confidence. And I thought, oh, you know, tapping, yeah, I don't. You heard about it. And yeah. I've even done it, and it didn't do much. And then I worked with you. First of all, I was very impressed with the research, the fact that cortisol levels fall very significantly with the tapping. I know that cellular inflammation, the root cause of all chronic degenerative diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, is all caused by inflammation. So the fact that the tapping decreases cortisol, the stress hormones that are running the whole show, that got my attention. Then we started to do it. And I, through the process of tapping, uncovered emotions about food, my weight, and eating that had been buried for a lifetime. Like you, I had been dieting from the age of 12 and still hadn't made peace with the body. It was an absolute crucial turning point for me of understanding how I was still, after all these years, after all these books, after all these diets, still had this at war with the body and that changed with the tapping, it turned things around in a wonderful way. What do you think is the difference between just talking about a problem compared to tapping? Uh, tapping gets to the key emotion. It gets to the, I would say, the inner child, as it were, who's sort of stuck in there and feels powerless and doesn't know what to do. And the tapping takes you out of your left hemisphere, which always thinks that it's driving the bus <laughs> and is never really driving the bus. It's just trying to solve a problem. It takes you out of that into the physical body, the connections to the right hemisphere, and there are far more connections to the bodily organs from the right hemisphere than there are the left. But the left, which is mostly what education educates, is the left hemisphere. Um, so it takes you out of that for a moment so that you get to the true body wisdom living in the organs, living in the fascia, living in the connective tissue that's been trying to get your attention for years. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And so as someone begins to do the tapping, one of the things that people sometimes become skeptical of is they say, well, how is it that this one technique can work for, say, a headache as well as a back pain? With your experience, are there certain emotions that impact certain parts of the body? And why do you believe that something like a stress relief technique can work on so many different aspects of the body? Well, first of all, because emotions are stored, as it were, 
in the fascia, which is a crystalline structure that runs throughout the entire body. It's like a very tight sweater over all of the muscles and all of the organs. And we now know that's where all the acupuncture meridians go. And it's like an electrical grid that connects us to our emotions. Any yoga teacher, any massage therapist will tell you that many times when you're massaging a certain area, all of these emotions will come pouring forth. So, you know, yes, we have the chakra system, and I've written about uh, where first chakra illnesses, the, the bone, the blood, uh, all of that is stored in the body, the second chakra. They all relate to certain emotions, there's no mm -hmm. question. Um, your, your thing has been weight loss. Uh, that's third chakra, self-esteem, personal power, governs the digestive system. Right. The heart is passion, compassion, giving, receiving, that's what the breasts are all about. So there are certain things, however, they're all stored in the fascia, and it doesn't matter where you start, it's like unraveling Right. A, a thing and the you know the all roads lead to Rome right? yeah you know, absolutely. sooner or later yeah well, what's so interesting too is someone approaches tapping and maybe they're not focusing on their physical body they're saying I just want to improve my relationship and suddenly they don't have the back pain anymore right so you had an experience like that years ago with migraines which I think is a perfect example of how this shows up in someone's life oh yes I had classical migraines I was even hospitalized at the age of 12 at the Faulkner Hospital in Boston with the world famous John Graham, who was a, a migraine specialist. I had all the tests, uh, classical migraines, all of it. And then, this is really important, so I go through college and I'm sophomore in college. I have sophomore slump, badly. And I had to um, do a poem, critique a poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats. And it was Cleveland, Ohio, it's November, it's bleak, and I think, oh, I can't do this. If I have to do this, I don't know. And then at one point I got so depressed, I thought I'm gonna throw myself in front of a car and end it all. I really was that depressed. And then, you know, I came to my senses quickly and I said, oh, well, I would probably just break my leg. Then I'd have to do the, the poem anyway. <laughs> I go back to the dorm. This is before cell phones, of course. I go to the payphone. I call my parents. My dad says, if it's bothering you that much, quit, come home. No one is forcing you to stay there. The headaches went away because the headaches were perfectionistic tendencies that I had put on myself since childhood. And I never had another one. Uh, I had maybe two more in my life when I was trying to clear Mm, 30 years of clutter in an afternoon, right, you know, like, happens. well, we, yeah, we've got to do this. We've got to clean my entire house because this right. is the day I have. Perfectionism is the root of so many illnesses. Mm -hmm. We believe that we need to be perfect. We, we believe, we're brought up to believe in school, right? Oh, she got 100%. She got an A. You're supposed to be perfect all the time. You can't be perfect. You need to be imperfect. You know when a plane goes from New York to San Diego, do you know that it's never on course? It's just course correcting. And goes here, bring it back. So we're always off course, but in the general vicinity of where we're going. Right. That's how life is. Yeah, and we put, we think that if we put pressure on ourselves, we can change. We think if we could just be mean to ourselves. And I used to be so mean to myself that I prided myself on it. Oh, of course. I thought it made me realistic and down to earth. And just, you know, I prided myself on being hard on myself because I thought that's what 
achievers do. And it was the very thing that was holding me back. But I had to look at the beliefs because we can have this logical conversation about beliefs, but we feel beliefs in our body. Oh no, they're, they're not intellectual. And that's, they're not intellectual. And that is why it's so great to do tapping. So I want to talk about beliefs because yeah. this is the work that you're doing right now about uh, aging, mm-hmm. I find so fascinating. So tell us a little bit about those beliefs and how they impact impact us emotionally and physically. Okay, cultural portals. These are called what Mario Martinez calls cultural portals. And they're much more powerful than biology. I've seen uh, many, many people who are 80 going on 40. I've also seen 40 going on 80. Yes. So chronologic age and biologic age are completely different. But here are the cultural portals that are so powerful. Teenagers. Oh, you're supposed to start acting like a teenager. Do you know that the entire term teenager and that whole marketing of teenage really didn't come in until they invented the car? Then kids had a way to escape in the car, and then we we did the teenager thing. Before that, they were working. Uh, One of the things most fascinating to me is retirement age, 65, right? That's when you can sign up for Medicare. That's based on Otto von Bismarck in Germany in 1880 deciding that the pensioners should have some kind of uh, amount of money until they died. So retirement was 65, the life expectancy was 18 years. It's now 24 years after the age of 65. In 1900, average age was 49, average life expectancy, it's now 79 and growing every year. So the fastest growing segment of the population is people over 90. So what we find is if the average uh, policeman, by the way, lives three years after retirement, because if you're a policeman or you're a fireman, you define yourself as a guy who goes and gets it done. And retire means worthless, no longer living a useful life. And the body just plays out those signals. Um, So just like for women, Uh, One of the most awful things is in medicine, all this data that after 35, you're infertile. Not true. Some of that original data was taken from the 1600s, the French Huguenots. So you don't suddenly, oh, I turned 35, guess I'm infertile, (laughs) never have a baby again. You know, when I was in my training at a Catholic hospital, Um, We had to do hysterectomies to get women to stop having babies. They were, you know, 47, 48, 49. So what you're saying is that just the research, just them knowing about that research is impacting their fertility. Yes, in fact, we co-author each other's biology. Okay, this is why you want to have a tribe of people you hang around with who believe in health. We know that your income is the average of the income of your five closest friends. Guess what? Your weight, your health habits are, they match your five closest friends. That's called the new science of sociogenomics. So our genes are so impacted with who we hang out with. We're biologic systems. And you know the impact of when someone, you were telling that story to me earlier, of someone when you were 19 saying, "You, you know you're fat. Right. I mean, okay, so that, Boom, you can feel that that has an instant flood of cortisol and stress hormones and makes you depressed and all the rest of it. So therefore, you want to be really, really careful about who you hang out with. And let's be clear, our culture is incredibly ageist. I go in to get, I had a new pair of ski boots, 
new pair of bindings, and I had to get them adjusted at the ski shop. So I go in and they ask me my age and suddenly they're making adjustments to the ski boots that have nothing to do with my level of expertise in skiing. So I was with my mother at the time who went to Mount Everest Base Camp at the age of 84 and I said, <laughs> what are they doing? She said, oh, that's an algorithm that they have. They have to adjust your bindings uh, as though, you know, if, if you sneeze, you'll fall out of them for liability after the age of 50. So they're just putting that, they're just assuming well, that at a certain age you're going to fall. Okay, but because that's how all of medicine and all of everything is set up. Instead of looking at the outliers, I always love those, those graphs, you know, where they show the bone density going down every year. But on all those graphs, there's always someone up here, you know, and someone here. It's like, wait a minute. That 80-year-old has the bone density of a 25-year-old. I want to know what that person is doing. Yeah. And so what we do, um, gym equipment is set up this way. There's this idea that, that deterioration is built into the programming. So when I go to the gym for an elliptical trainer, I just put in 40. I also, and Mario Martinez taught me this, I don't give my age. Why? It's not that I care about my age. It's that I don't want anyone's input about my age right and I think this is really toxic for young women who are approaching 34 35 they haven't met the man of their dreams they go to the doctor well the clock is ticking <laughs> and uh, you know maybe you're gonna want to freeze your eggs do you know that that alone that conversation alone will make you infertile. I volunteer at this um, this institution that does free alternative medicine for women with breast cancer. Uh -huh. And one of the things that it works, tapping works great with, and two of their biggest problems is insomnia and also and also constipation. And it's so emotional because what's, what is so interesting is when I speak to them, the insomnia, they think it's the cancer, but didn't start until after the diagnosis. And so what we have to look at are the emotions around that diagnosis, that moment, in order to help them begin to sleep again. So Dr. Northrup, what would you say to someone who says, I was diagnosed with this herniated disc, there it is, I have the x-ray, so this means I'll always be in pain and it will get worse as I age. Okay, this is, if you look at the medical literature, we have studies that show that 40% of normal people have herniated discs or MRI uh, pathology. They're normal, they're healthy, they feel fine. We over-rely on our technology and we under-rely on what's going on in the body. There are many people, here's a beautiful example, in the very famous nun study uh, done in Minnesota, it's ongoing, where they've studied nuns since they entered the convent at age 18 and all of them have agreed to have their brains studied after they die. The ones with absolutely no dementia have the same Alzheimer's plaques and whorls and amyloid deposits as the one who had dementia. In other words, what we do is we say the amyloid plaques are the cause of the dementia. No, the mind supersedes all of that. It's one of the reasons that I love studying the near-death experience where these people literally die, like Anita Morjani, dies of terminal Hodgkin's disease, but then comes back and her tumors all dissolve or my friend Evie, who was diagnosed with ALS and um, just rolled her wheelchair over to the mirror every day and figured, well, I'm dying, so I, I've never experienced unconditional love. Mm -hmm. So I'm just gonna start with my eyebrows. 
and then every day she got better and better. And then what medicine does, when you reverse something that they don't think is reversible, we change the diagnosis. You never had it. So we underplay tremendously the ability of the body to change under different belief systems. We need to understand how absolutely, utterly powerful our minds are. Kenneth Pelletier wrote a book long ago, Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. You know, one of the parts of tabbing the beginning is the setup statement, which is even though, and you see the problem, I love and accept myself, or I accept myself. I know you're a big fan of that. Why do you think it's important for us to begin this process and to say those things to ourselves? Because what you're doing is you're finally allowing this little wounded part of yourself to know that it's okay, that it's lovable. Mm -hmm. Even though I weigh 10 pounds more than I think would be fabulous, I love and accept myself. This is Gay Hendricks' work from way back, a book called Learning to Love Yourself. He says, mm -hmm. here's how you love yourself. He was having a sore throat at the time. I love myself for having a sore throat. Even though I have a sore throat, I love and accept myself right now. It literally creates space. It creates vasodilatation in the uh, um, cardiovascular system. It increases nitric oxide, the molecule of chi and wellness. And everything becomes better because it's like, wow, wow. It's okay for me to be right where I am. Now it's interesting when you study people who've gone through cancer and chemotherapy, they normally don't have that much trouble with the actual chemo times. Let me tell you when they hit bottom, the year after the diagnosis, when they're already in remission. Because we can mount a response to an emergency. We're good at that. But how do we live in between? Mm. What, if, what if there is no emergency? Well, you're beginning to teach that I love and accept myself right now. You're beginning to teach the body how to just be with what is right now and that it's okay. <sighs> and we are underestimating how powerful that is. We completely underestimate how powerful that is. What we want is we want CAT scans, brain scans, surgeries, radiation. We want big guns. Our medical lexicon is exactly the same as the military's. Mm -hmm. Let's kill it. Let's right. get in there. Right. Let's nuke it. Well, and that, that idea too with life. So maybe you're not dealing with a health challenge at the moment, but you're looking at your life and you're not satisfied. And you there's something inside of you that says there is more to life than this. And so what do you do? You go to that panic, that pressure. If I can build enough pressure, maybe I'll change. And that's the very pressure that impacts our body in a negative way that keeps us sabotaging ourselves instead of realizing that the real shifts actually come when we accept where we are. As we're wrapping up here, I wanna go back to this ageism thing, which is so interesting, because you have to put yourself in a position of being open and learning something new. Yes. And as children, we're very open, and as we get older, there are often beliefs. So what are some of the beliefs that you feel block people from growing, from feeling like they're even, it's, it's even worth it at that age. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I remember when I, when I went through uh, a divorce, my brother, who had also been divorced, would call me at exactly the right time, and he'd say, I know what you're thinking. You've been married 24 years. If you could just stick with it, you're like over half done. So, you know, it's like, just, just stick with it because it's almost too late, was the belief. Mm -hmm. So the beliefs are this. Now that I'm, just put insert an age, 
I'm too old to learn a language, learn to dance, fall in love, go back to school, drive at night, you just name it. Too old to get fit, too old to whatever it is. Now when you talk to healthy centenarians, these are real healthy people over the age of 100, they all, no matter where they are in the world, have the same thing in common. They're future-oriented. You say, well, I like your garden. And they say, wait till you see it in three years. <laughs> or, so true. And they're rebels. They're rebels. They don't go along with the herd ever. They're not codependent. I'd like to interview you on Saturday. I'm sorry, that's my tango lesson. Not doing it. They, and they're in communities that support this. Mm-hmm. So we all need communities that support our agelessness instead of, now for instance, when I go into a restaurant, I will pass tables where it's a full-on organ recital. Uh, My liver is doing this (laughs) and my uh, kidneys and I went to the doctor and this is what they said. The whole conversation is about their pathology. Right. It's like give that wide berth. I mean, I've talked about the same thing with women. We have to stop that conversation of always complaining about our body and what we don't like about it. Now, that's, the very conversation is what's keeping us It's the stuck. same thing. It's, it's yeah. exactly the same thing. We know from studies of the brain that the hippocampus, memory area, can increase throughout your entire life. Two periods of 20-minute aerobic exercise increases the number of cells in the hippocampus. That's mm-hmm. nothing. Two 20-minute periods, that's nothing. We know from London cab drivers who have to actually learn the streets, what a concept, they have to learn them. Their hippocampus grows exponentially during the time that they're learning all the streets of London. No matter what age. No, no, no. It has nothing to do. Oh, and we also have really fun studies of people in their 90s who took up weight training. And if they're in assisted living, it isn't that these people, now they can get up and go to the bathroom at night and not fall because you can build muscle at any point. By a time someone's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they've lost 40% of their muscle mass. Why? Because they weren't using it. That's the only reason it has nothing to do with age, nothing to do with age. So you've got to stop using that as an excuse. I'm too old too. How about no? Until your last breath, you need to be living in the present and in the future. So one thing that I would say to people right away, stop listening to the oldies station (laughs) 24-7. Listen to what's current. Stay in the here and now. That's, by the way, that's macrobiotics, eating. To be in the here and now, eat what's grown in the here and now. What a great idea. Yes. You can go to 80s night now and again. But really, stick with what's going on now. Learn new computer skills. Don't complain about, okay, yeah, I got to get a Gen Xer to show me how to use my iPhone. Fine, go down to the Apple store and take a class. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that it's important to have something to look forward to. So I hope Mm. that people look forward to learning something new, to even, you know, being able to look at their beliefs and realize that they're not facts. They are beliefs and there's something that we can do about it. And as we grow, I want to encourage people to try new things, like you said. And one of the things that you do, which I find fascinating, is tango. Yes. So tell us a little bit, because actually, I'll tell everyone that we met the first time ever in Buenos Aires. I was there with family. 
your daughter called me and said my mom's in town and I was like you mean Dr. Christian Martha <laughs> do you want to have dinner with her yes <laughs> and we had dinner together and you talked about tango with just such a passion that I was so inspired so and it's something that you learned later in life so yes. why what role did that play in your life uh absolutely first of all let me be clear putting myself in that situation was harder than medical school Tango. Yes. Tango classes. Yeah. It was hard. I'll tell you why. Because of all the beliefs. Mm. I'm too old. And then I would go in and there would be three leaders and 10 middle-aged women. And I'd say, oh, yeah, that's what the world needs. It needs another middle-aged woman who wants to learn how to dance. That's a drug on the market. And all the ways that we put ourselves down. And right. I thought, all right. But what am I waiting for? I've always wanted to do this. So I would go to the classes, you know, and then I thought, wait a minute, I should be able to change the culture of this particular tango community. And so I finally, here's what I said to the women. I said, okay, listen, female desire, which I learned from Mama Gina here in New York, Regina Thomas Hauer, is the strongest force on the planet. We ought to be able to get more leaders in here. And so the women did. And then on many nights, we had more leaders than followers. And this community... So what do you mean? Because in tango, you, you have a leader? You have a leader and right. you have a follower. Right. Normally, it's a male role and a female role. Though it's better if you learn both roles. But let me tell you, after a lifetime of leading, I was there to follow. I was there to learn how to surrender to the lead of a man and, and train my body to receive the pleasure available there, life-changing. Because I had to, like with tapping, I had to go through all of the beliefs that I had about myself. And then with, with tango, it's like a martial art. It's one heart, four legs. It is literally being in the present moment, often with a total stranger, and you create heaven on earth in five minutes. And then you're done. You don't have to go and buy appliances or anything. You, don't, <laughs> you just have this heaven on earth experience of true life-giving intimacy where your prolactin increases, your beta endorphin increases. And as I got better and better, I would walk out of the studio on Congress Street in Portland, Maine. I would walk on air. And when I was in Buenos Aires dancing once at Salon Canning, I, you know, I, and I danced with my eyes closed. But taking a moment, and this is part of health, taking a moment of savoring what's going on and me saying to myself, I am dancing tango in Buenos Aires and I am enjoying it and there's a live orchestra and this is a miracle. In other words, when you're doing it, you do it. Like yes. you have the experience. Now imagine if you never did it because you had that belief that it's too late for me, I'm not worth it. You would have missed out on this incredible experience. So I think in the spirit of trying new things, I would love it if you would treat us to a tango, if we could see you dance and we can kind of feel that and be part of that experience that you talk about. That would be my pleasure because <laughs> when I'm doing it, I'm in that place anyway. I don't even care who's looking. As Shootsie Lee, one of my teachers, says, I dance to be felt, not to be Oof. seen. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank right. you so much. All this right. is great. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.